When I was um, 21 years old, I was a freshman in Bible college. Now, before you think I was like dumb or anything, remember I already had like a, a degree. Uh, was, I, I didn't have a gap year or whatever. I already had a, an associate's degree in, in, in metal tool and die stuff. And I had gone to Bible college a little later and I had come on home on break in order to work. And I was working in the same factory that I worked in before I, I went to college. And um, I got a phone call. Uh, from a pastor while I was home on break, and he said, hey, I'd like for you to come preach at my church. Now, this church um, had a bad reputation with the the crowd that I ran with. Uh, The crowd that I ran with, they thought, that is the the yuppity church. And this was a country, country club church. And so it's like... um, a First Baptist Church in the South, big, nice building, but out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, I mean, it was like, just, it was different. It was different. And uh, the people there uh, were just thought to be, like, really snooty, really stuck up. And I was like, he called me, and I was like, sure. I, I was 21, and, man, on fire for the Lord. I would preach anywhere. And so I was so excited. And I go, it's a Sunday night, of course. It wasn't Sunday morning. Get the young preacher boy a chance on Sunday night. And I show up. And um, I knew a lot of people in the church, including the pastor's daughter. And um, I, I preached this passage from Galatians. And man, I called people to repentance and sin. I was broken at that point in my life. You know, I was broken over my own sin. But man, I was so, still so close to what the Lord had, had done for me and how he had moved and worked. And I just, I realized like, but by the grace of God, I should be a dead man. And I, I remember I pre- preaching this sermon. And in that sermon somewhere, I'm talking about sin and repenting of sin and struggling with sin. And I mentioned that I'm like, I'm a 21-year-old man. Of course I still struggle with lust. But I have to put to death what therefore is earthly in me or whatever. And when I said I struggle with the sin of lust, they went, <gasps> it was like this gasp. And all of a sudden, the pastor started getting judged as I was preaching. And I don't know that they heard another word after that other than the dude on the stage is a sinner. Well, it comes time, and I, you know, I, I preach, and man, churches, churches like that have altar calls, and so, man, I love me a good altar call, and so I, I did the altar call, and I was like, you know, I called people to come forward in faith, repentance, to come forward and pray in repentance of sin, and no one moved a muscle. They just stood there looking at, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, and after uh, the, the first stanza in church hymns, first, second, and fourth stanza. He never sang the third. I don't know why. And um, after the first stanza, the pastor comes up and he stands in front of everybody. He goes, now I know we don't have anybody in, like sinners in our church, any sin in our church. And I'm over here and I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, my mouth opens up. I'm like, what is this guy talking about? And he says, but. All of us know sinners, and we know people who need to repent. So I want to invite you to come forward and pray for the sinners in your life. And they emptied out of the pews, and they came down in the church, and they were like weeping and praying for people in their life. And I stood over here the whole time going, I, I cannot believe what I'm watching. Church like that, you... you you shake hands, um, 
as people leave, and especially as a guest preacher, and I stood in the back, and people walked out, and they shook my hand, and they said, I'll be praying for you, praying for your struggle against sin. <laughs> I'm like, yup, yeah, guess that sermon was for me. This one guy, literally, this, this guy creeped me out. He stopped, and, and he's like, I, I have... I know I have the keys to overcoming the sin of lust, and I'm a counselor, and I would love to meet with you and help you do that. Yeah. And the next morning I got in my truck, and I, I think that might be the last time I ever preached in Tacoa, Georgia, um, uh, which is my hometown. It really may be the last time I ever preached there, and, and I drove anyway. Um, today, as we open up our text, I tell that story as a warning for each of us. And not just a warning for each of us, but as a warning for our whole church. Here's the big truth of the message today. The the main takeaway that I want you to understand, and it's this, the more we understand the depths of our own sin, the more clearly we understand the depths of God's mercy. So the more we understand our own depravity, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, the more clearly we will understand just what God did for us in putting Jesus Christ on the cross. We will understand the depths of His mercy and His grace towards us. Today we're going to be continuing in Luke chapter 7. I will finish Luke chapter 7 today. Last week, uh, we talked about messengers from John the Baptist and how they came. And, and John the Baptist in prison, and they sent some of his disciples saying, Are you the one, or should we look for another? And how John the Baptist had even kind of uh, ascribed to Jesus uh, what he wanted him to do and who he wanted him to be, rather than believing in the God of, of the Scriptures. And of course, we believe that, that he got it right in the, in the end. And so today we come to another story. And so there's no really time gap between this. It doesn't tell us what town he's in or anything. It just, this story just begins to happen. And so we'll pick up in chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love them, love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept 
my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right. We're going to jump back up to 36 and let's start diving into this text. We'll begin to take it, take it apart, kind of section by section. And so we see there in verse 36, a Pharisee asked him into his house uh, to eat with him, and they went and they reclined at table. And so to understand what's going on here, to begin to understand this like really kind of weird thing to us, right? I mean, there's weird stuff in this passage. Um, I'm just saying, if, if coming to church involved somebody crying on my feet and anointing them with oil, I would not come to church. You know, like that's, that's different, isn't it? There's different things going on in this passage. And so for us to understand, what's, understand the passage, we have to understand what, what was part of first century culture and also what Jewish hospitality meant. And so um, in, in the first century, it would have been very common to invite uh, special guests to come in one of the nicer houses closest to town, the town center. So when somebody would come to town, uh, somebody would come and preach in the synagogue, the rabbi, whoever it was, this would have been very common for them to get invited into a home. Matter of fact, in, in a lot of cultures, this is still very common. I've been, I've been, I've preached in other countries. I, I remember one time being way up in the jungle in Brazil, and I preached at this little church in a little town called Suma Uma, right on the side of the Rio Negra. And after I, after I preached, I went into this guy named Erasmus's home, and we sat at the table, and we, we ate, and, but other people came in and listened to us talk, but yet they didn't all get food. Right? There wasn't enough food for everybody, but they just wanted to be, uh, they just wanted to come hear, hear me talk. And so, strange white man, let's go listen to him, right? And so, this was true um, in India. Uh, when I've been to India, you would go be invited into a house, and when you go to a house, they're going to have a tea ceremony, and they're going to serve you chai, and you're going to drink it, and it's good, right? You go to Ethiopia. I love Ethiopia. When you go in Ethiopia, um, every house you go into, they're going to they're like do a coffee ceremony, and they're going to seat their visitors a certain way, and Man, I'd like it now, but back when I went to Ethiopia, I didn't like coffee. And so I would like fake drink it and pass it to Jennifer, and we'd swap glasses, and she would drink it. Um, she was just clutch for coffee. Um, this, is nor this is normal in other cultures, not necessarily normal in ours. We're like, uh, let's, go, let's, you know, let's go to Longhorn. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll pay for yours. Um, so it's a little different. So that would, that would happen. They would come. When they would come into the home... Uh, the, the dining area would be 
the center of the home, one of the larger areas of the home. And typically, there was a dining area, but there would be enough room that people could gather around the dining area. At the dining area, it's set up way different than what we, uh, we do, what we would imagine. There is a round table. There would be a round table. It would be really small, though. It would not, not real, it's not like big because you weren't necessarily eating on it. And sit off of that... There would be these three benches, almost in a kind of horseshoe kind of shape. And um, these would more like, imagine you took a a futon and you cut it in half and you threw half of it on the ground, right? And you're going to lay on that. But you think that's comfortable, but then let's just make it out of rock. All right, let's throw some cushions on it made out of rock. We've got three of them. You come to the table. They're they're on the ground. They're low. I'm not going to demonstrate this. Uh, not laying down. It, they would lay towards the table with their arms, and they would reach to the table, and they would get something to eat. Their feet would be behind them. When, it, when they would need to drink, they would lean on their left arm, and they would lean up, and they would drink. I don't know if you've tried drinking laying down, um, but it would be hard, right? So they, they would do that. And so you're kind of all laying side by side. You're up in each other's business. You know, you're, often you're, you're, you're touching, and you're eating, and you're keeping your dirty, nasty feet away. Now, here's some other things that would happen when you came into a Jewish home. These things were, these things were important. Often you would be greeted at the door with a kiss. And so you've seen that in other cultures where they'll do a kiss on each cheek. If today leaving you try to kiss me, I'm going to punch you. All right? You don't kiss this pastor. Only one woman right there gets to kiss me. Not our culture. Um, they, as you came in, they would wash your feet. Your, your, your feet would be dirty. You're walking in the dirt. You're wearing sandals. Your feet would be dirty. Um, man, if you have any kids in student ministry, when you pick them up today, they'll have played gaga ball in the gaga ball pit, and their feet will be dirty. You should understand this, right? They, our kids come home every week, and I'm like, we got to put something in the bottom of that gaga ball pit. They would wash their feet typically it would be, I mean, it was a servant's job or a slave's job to wash feet. Nobody with any real dignity holding any position of authority would wash somebody else's feet. They would not touch those nasty things, right? So this is, this is a, a servant's job. And another thing that they would often do is they would take olive oil and they would rub it on the person's head. It's kind of, kind of weird, but they did it. So like putting lotion on them is dry, hot, arid climate, dirty climate. And so they would take and they would put oil on their head. So that would have happened. They would sit as they're sitting, talking. There are people who aren't eating, often coming in and out of the room. They're coming in to listen. They're leaving, right? So those are all things that there are normal part of their culture that are happening. So verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Here's my next big idea is that true worship strips us of our self-regard. True worship humbles us. It strips us of pride. So true worship strips us of our self-regard. One, 
First thing I want you to notice is that she is weeping. It is with her tears that she washes his feet. What are those tears from? Are those tears of joy? Are those tears of fear? Brokenness? Thank, thanksgiving? Are, they, are, are she crying because she's thankful? Yes. To all of them. And if you've come to Christ and you, you have been, you, you've been humbled and you see what Christ has done for you, you often come with such emotion and the weight of all of it that you're, you're thankful and you're, you're broken and you're repentant and you're joyful. You understand His mercy, His love. You feel loved. All those tears, all those emotions flowing at once onto her feet. So she comes weeping. The second thing I would show you is that she lets her hair down. This is scandalous. This is an unheard of in that culture. A, a woman would not let her hair down in front of anybody but her husband. And so this is a scandalous act, and she does not care. She lets her hair down with her tears, her long hair, and she washes her feet, she, his feet. She's doing something that a servant or slave would do. And beyond that, she kisses his feet. Now, if we look in this passage, who was this woman? Luke, in giving us this woman, as he describes her, he just calls her a sinner. A woman of the city who was a sinner. That's what the Pharisees thought of her when they saw her, a sinner. Most scholars believe, as they read this, and they, they, they look at the text, they look at the, the, the Greek, because of the way some different words are used, they believe that this woman was more than likely a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. Now, she may not, she may not have been. I don't think it really changes uh, the meaning of our text. No matter who she was, whether she was just poor or in some dire situation, she was obviously a sinner, and she was sitting at the feet of her Savior. At Oberlin, we often define worship as this. We say that worship is taking our mind's attention and our heart's affection and placing it on the Lord for who He is and what He has done. Worship is an overflow of thanksgiving. It's an expression of our adoration. And so when we say that what we're doing when we worship is we're taking our mind and we're thinking about what thinking about Jesus as Lord. We're thinking about who He is. We're taking our mind's attention and we're placing it on the Lord. For who He is, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who was and is to come. He is God in the flesh. And what He's done. What did Jesus do for us? What did God do for us? God being rich in mercy because He loved us, sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. He came to pay the debt that we could not pay, but yet we owed. He came and He did that. And so when we say that, when we say, what is worship? It's putting our minds on Jesus. It's, it's putting the overflow of thanksgiving in our hearts for who He is and what He's done for us. On Jesus. That is what worship is. And so 
false worship, worshiping false idols, is taking your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and placing on other things and calling them God, letting them be the thing that rules your life. That's what false worship is. So we're saying true biblical worship is, is, is this. And I think by that definition, I think she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him as Savior with no regard for what the Pharisees think of her. That when she walked in the doors of that house, she walked in a judged person. A person that goes, a sinner's here. (laughs) As if she was the only one. And so, here she shows up. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. David is king. And they're having a massive celebration that the Ark of the Covenant is coming. And so David, the king, leaves the temple, leaves, leaves the, the palace, and he runs out with, with everybody else in the streets, with the Levites who were bringing it in, but all the Jewish people, the Israelites who were, who were celebrating, and he begins worshiping with them. And he gets in line, and he starts dancing and, and the, the Bible says that he danced with all his might, just like any of them. It said that he basically stripped down to his uh, linen uh, uh, ephod, which would have been what most people were wearing. He looked and was dressed like a common man, or a common Levite, actually, one of, one of the, the people of, of the tribe of Levi, a, a priest in nature. This is what he was dressed as. And his wife, Michael, looks out the window, and she sees him dancing. And she looks out, and she sees him dancing, and she becomes incredibly embarrassed that the king, the anointed one, would lower himself to be like those people and take off his kingly attire and dance just like everybody else. Like he has lost his mind. He's lost his dignity. He's lost for his regard for himself. When he comes up and Michael approaches him about it and calls him out on it, he looks at her and he says, Oh, I can become even more undignified than this. I am just the one that God chose to put as king, but he is the real king. I don't need people to worship me. I'm worshiping Him. Judge me how you will. I can become even more undignified than this. And man, that is how we ought to come to worship. We ought to come to worship like this lady. Now, I'm not suggesting that we cry on anybody's feet, anoint anybody's feet, kiss anybody's feet, but we ought to come to the throne of Jesus, bowing down to the King of kings and Lord of lords, willing to become undignified, to lose our pride, to lose our self-regard. And if in worship, and your mind's attention, and your heart's affection is on Christ, and you get emotional because you understand the weight of your sin, it is okay to cry. It is okay to sit down. It is okay to weep. It is okay to lift your hands. It's okay to sing loud. It's okay not to sing loud. It's okay It's okay. to worship how you feel the, the Lord is moving. Not about show. Not about getting attention. Not about make, make me raising my hands so that you know, oh, I love God more than you. You can judge me for how, how I worship all you want. I don't care. I'm not worshiping you. I'm worshiping Jesus. 
And so there needs to be a freedom for God's people to worship, to be undignified, to lose self-regard and lay down one's pride before the feet of Jesus. Let's be like her. True worship strips us of our self-regard. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Here's my next big idea. Is that we often have the ability to see others' sins clearly while remaining blind to our own sins. I do this. You do this. We all do this. We have the incredible ability to see the speck in somebody else's eye without noticing the log in our own eye. It, it's our default unspiritual gift. It's what we do. We have to fight it with everything in us. And so Simon, with his indignant judgmentalism, has this thought, says to himself, He, he, he messes up here. He doesn't just judge the woman. He also judges Jesus. He looks at Jesus and is like, oh, if this guy were really a prophet, if he were really who he says he is, he would know who's touching him. And, and man, I guess he didn't hear what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain. He must have not been listening or wasn't there. Because if you go back just to Luke chapter 5... This is, this is what it says in Luke chapter 5. Luke records this for us. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. And so... In our judgmentalism, and our hard, arctic hearts, ice-cold hearts, we can get to the place where we think way highly of ourselves than we ought. And we can think that we are without sin, and we can look at others and go, Sinner? And before long, if your heart gets that cold, before long, you won't just be calling a person a sinner. You'll be calling the people they associate with them a sinner. They're not just a sinner, they're a friend of sinners. And then before long, you'll start looking at churches that have people in them that don't look like you, act like you, smell like you, talk like you, like the same things that you like. You'll look at them and you'll judge them as if by the grace of God, you won't all end up in the kingdom of God in heaven together. Unpartial to the to this. To, to the sin or anything in their life. It is a common need of God's mercy that we have. And so here's Jesus' answer to Simon. By the way, as we talk about Simon, there's a lot of Simons in the Bible. This is not Simon Peter. This is not any of the other Simons. This is just this Simon. Okay, you're not seeing me where this is just this Simon. Jesus answered, said to Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I love the way that Luke captures that. It's almost like Simon uh, realizes that Jesus has baited him and he knows the right answer and he hates giving the right answer. But here it is. I suppose, caught here, the one who canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then he turns toward the woman and he points to her. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The clearer we see our sin, the more we love Jesus who paid the price for it. That's the next big idea. The clearer we see our sin, the more we love Jesus who paid the price for it. I want you to understand something from this passage. Pharisees, if you know much about Pharisees, you know that they they really sought to uphold the law. To do every dot and iota. They wanted to be good by their own works. And so in a lot of, in a lot of ways, they, that Pharisee has less sin than that woman. I mean, he's lived his whole life trying to keep the rules, trying to follow the rules. He, he doesn't, he's not just giving over to sinfulness, not giving over to the, the passions of the flesh. He's not just trying to live a hedonistic lifestyle where everything goes. He's trying to uh, cross his T's and dot his I's. He's trying to do things. She's not. She, she's lived how she wanted to live. And now she knows she needs a Savior, and she sees Jesus as the Savior. A few years ago, you started hearing about debt, uh, uh, student debt loan forgiveness. And man, it, it, was a, it was a way in which to buy votes. Um, if we can get people to vote for me, if we can think, if, if, by, if I'm in office, I'll forgive your debt. And so it was a way to buy votes. And so it happened finally, right? It happened, it took a while, and it wasn't that your whole college debt got forgiven. It was $10,000 of your college debt forgiven. Now, I worked through college. I worked dang hard through college, and I never owed a dime. I never had a dollar of student debt. So I'm hearing this, and I'm not thankful that your debt is getting forgiven. I'm ticked about it. Why does my hard work have to pay for your irresponsibility while I was responsible? Now, if you had student debt, you're on the other side of that. You're like, hey, I didn't like this either. And most of you realize this is a way to buy votes, but hey, $10,000 is $10,000. And I ain't ain't turning it down. Like, I get it. I understand why this is bad economics. And while this is like my kids are going to pay for it, but it's them. I'll be dead. (laughs) Right? Thank goodness we have that $10,000 loan forgiveness. Now, do you see the difference? Even if you didn't like it, you're happy about it. I ain't been happy about it for a second. 
if you know anything about Zach and taxes, you know, like, it's like the number one thing in my life. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's so hard. This is it. The one who's forgiven more loves more. A denarii was one day's wage. And so at that time, uh, if you worked hard in a field, uh, hard in a day laborer, you would get about one denarii. So one person owed 50 days' wages, and the other person owed 10 times that. 500 times. Both had debts. Both were forgiven. Both were wiped away, equally gone. Both gone. Right there. Gone. When we look at this, and we look at this the lens, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. No one is righteous. Not even one. When we look at the, the biblical truth, that this is a debt that we cannot atone for. Only Jesus can. The clearer you see your sin and the weight of it, you don't need to look at your sin and go, oh, I only owed 50 denarii. I only had a little bit. I'm not like the person over here. There's just truth that the person who came from the harder place gets to understand it. Now, I love a good testimony. I love a testimony that shows like somebody that was pulled out of like Satan's grips, pulling them towards hell, and God rips them out and saves them to the kingdom of heaven. I love that story. I just don't want it for my kids. Right? What I do want my kids to see is that when, when John Owen comes to faith, as, I think it was, he's six or seven years old. Seven years old. As a seven-year-old, his, his, his coming to faith looks way different than somebody who's 50 years old and has lived a, a depraved life. But he's still got a sinful heart. He's still got a heart. The, the eight-year-old in our church who comes to Christ needs to understand that their sin has separated them from God. Having a right view of our sin, the clearer we see it, it makes us love the one who paid the price for it more. It makes us love Jesus more. Now, if that's true, why are we adverse to talking about sin in the American church? Why, don't we, why do we run from talking about sin? There's two groups of people. Two kind of mindsets in our country. And this is not, these don't uh, align uh, among political lines, socioeconomic economic lines. They're just two groups. The first group doesn't want you to feel any guilt. They believe that feeling guilt about anything will destroy you. So guilt about sin is going to make you feel bad about yourself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lower your, your view of yourself. And so they don't want you to feel it. They don't, they don't want you to feel any sort of, of guilt. So if we just excuse everything, we rid all guilt. If, if we allow everything, we rid ourselves of all guilt because guilt will hurt you. And, and what has that gotten us? Right? If you're an employer and you employ anybody under the age of, I don't know, whatever millennials are, and down, you're like, oh, I get this. Like, they can never do anything wrong. You can never correct them. You, like, you, you, get, you get this issue of like, oh, you're just got to be perfect and told you're perfect all the time. It ain't working. Right? 
we have to realize we're not perfect. And we need to change. And we need to grow. We need to learn. We need to change. There's another group. And they're those that they want you to feel guilty. They want to get guilt trip you. They want to use it as a form of manipulation. Because if they can get you to feel guilty, they can get you to act on it. Guilt is a great motivator, they say. And so they use guilt to try to make you do what you want, they want you to do. Um, I don't know if you've booked airfare lately, but when you book airfare now, um, they have to basically put in there, they have to tell basically what your damage is to the environment, your carbon, whatever damage. They want you to feel bad about flying. And I guess they want you to pay something for it rather than paying for it. I, I don't know how it works, but it's like, like that guilt's not motivating me, right? I'm gonna, I got to fly to Cleveland tomorrow, and I'm going to do it just fine. Glad I'm not driving to Cleveland tomorrow, right? They want you to feel guilty. It's a, it's a number of things. It's a number of things that if I can just make you feel guilty, I can manipulate you. Here's the first application for those in this room who profess Christ as Lord. You profess Jesus as Lord. We don't want you to walk around in a, in a mode of self-hatred. We don't want you to walk around in a guilt-ridden state. We want you to walk around understanding that your sins are forgiven. We want you to live a life thankful for Jesus and the price He paid on the cross. We, we want you to understand like the weight of our sin and shame and our guilt. Jesus paid it all. Every bit of it. He paid it. And so what does that bring you to but a place of worship, a place of adoration, a place of thanksgiving? That you're forgiven of your sins, that He paid your debt. And so our motiv- motivator, this isn't doing it out of duty, it's doing it out of delight. That in our state of forgiveness, understanding what Christ did for us on the cross, we can live a life in freedom. We can live, live a life that, that guilt, no, guilt-free, guilt is a lie from Satan. And so let's own it. Own your sin. I'm a sinner. Your spouse is a sinner. Your kids are a sinner. And when you realize that you're living in a home full of broken people, then it brings you to a place of love and compassion for the other person. And when somebody walks into our church, walks into a congregation that doesn't look like you, talk like you, act like you, doesn't live the life that you realize. Like, I, I, think, I think back to in March when the guy showed up out front on a bicycle, high on meth. And if he'd have walked through those doors, Buddy tried to talk him to, into coming to church. He was, he was tweaking, he was doing all the things. There's no doubt that if he would have walked in that day, our judgmental hearts would have judged him. But the right thing to do would have been to be realized, but by the grace of God, I'm not him. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not addicted to meth. And so let me love him in his brokenness, in his sinfulness. Let me embrace him and show him the love of Jesus. Not look at him like the girl and go, sinners here, uh, sinners at church today. I'm upset. I got news for you. They came in your car. And so the second application for the believer is repent of judgmentalism. Repent of it. Fight it. Do whatever it takes to put it to death. 
to put it to death, to kill it. Do whatever it takes to rid yourself of it. You know, in raising our two boys, Jennifer and I have a goal. We want our boys to be able to dine with, dine with the governor, dine with senators, and sit on the stoop with a homeless person. We wanted to be able to look at everybody, no matter their social or economic status, no matter their race, no matter what it is. We want to be able to look at them and go, that's a broken person. That's a sinful person in need of Jesus, just like me. And so we want to see clearly their sin so that they can see clearly the Savior who paid the price for it. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My last big idea. By our faith, Jesus forgives us from our sins. It's not the Pharisees' works that saved him. It's the sinner's faith that saved her. It is by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We, we come to the cross, we come to salvation, bringing only one thing, and that's our sin. And it is Jesus who pays the price for it, and our faith isn't in ourselves, our faith is in Jesus. So today, if you are in the room, and you think in your head that you can be good enough, that you, you, can, you can rid yourself of sin, and you can become perfect and good, you have fun trying that. Here's the better idea. Repent and call out to the Lord and say, Father, I am a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. God, save me. And He will. And He will. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And there is not a person in this room who has a debt too large for Jesus to pay. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what guilt you're walking around with. You can have a a list of bad things that make 500 denarii paying the worker. Like you can go, okay, 100 times that. And Christ's death on the cross will atone for your sin. You cannot out-sin God's love. His death on the cross. Believe in the Lord Jesus and He will save you. And when you place your faith and trust in Christ, it's time to walk in a step of obedience. And how the world, how you tell the world that you're following Christ, how you tell the world that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior is something we call baptism. It's going into, it's it's a symbolic expression of our faith where we go into the water and it's symbolizing that we are dying to ourselves, and we're being raised to walk in a new way of life. That the old man has gone, the new has come. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I once lived in the flesh in sin, I now live by faith in the Son of God.
Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mercy that we see. That while we deserved your wrath, while our evil, dark, rebellious hearts deserved your wrath, you being rich in love and mercy, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And that's it, Lord. That's the prayer today. Though our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Lord, move and work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing a song of response.